0: Amen. Let's bow and pray together. Lord Jesus, you are truly the Son of God. You died, you rose again, and today you are seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And you reign over all. The creation is subject to you. Kings and nations and governments subjected to you. Lord, may we each as individuals bring our own selves, our own wills this morning in subjection to your authority as king. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, expressing to us not only what is true about who you are and what you've done, but expressing to us what your will is for us as your people. When we consider what Christ has done for us, when we see him there on the cross bleeding for our sin, dying to take our place. Lord, may that understanding of Christ and the gospel create soft hearts that are eager and willing to obey. So Lord, help us this morning as we open your word and pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, that we might receive all that you have for us today. So Lord, be glorified and have your way in our hearts today. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 35. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, um, we've got a whole bunch of Bibles here and we would love to give them away. So if you don't have a Bible, if you, don't, if you want one, just raise your hand real quick. Max has a couple here and he can get one of those into your hands. You just take that home with you today. That would be our gift to you. So if you don't have one, just raise your hand real quick. Max, if we can get one in the back back here, that would be great. We'd love for you guys to follow along with us this morning as we walk through Exodus chapter 35. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so it's right up towards the beginning. We've been in Exodus for a year and a half now. And just to uh, catch you up to speed, last week we saw that God has restored Israel after a major failure. Although Israel, as a nation, having been rescued from slavery in Egypt, they had sworn loyalty to God. They had promised to obey his law. God had given them the Ten Commandments. Israel quickly turned away. It didn't take long before they made a calf out of gold, and they bowed down to it, and they worshipped it. They committed idolatry. They turned away from their God, and this brought painful consequences, as we saw. It nearly resulted in the destruction of the nation. But Moses, their leader, he prayed for them. He appealed to God on their behalf. And what did God do? Well, God poured out unbelievable grace upon these people. He forgave them of their sin. He blessed them with his presence. He said, I will be with you. And he renewed and restored the covenant with them, this this relational agreement that they had that had been broken by sin. You know, it's pretty easy for us to relate to the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, isn't it? Just like them, we often turn away from God's commands, don't we? You and I have broken God's laws. We run after the things of the world. Instead of worshiping God, we we spend all of our time and effort chasing money, looking for pleasure, feeding our own pride and our ego, trying to secure the approval of man. We, like Israel, are great sinners. And yet... God's grace is greater than our sin. And as we sang this morning, in God's kindness, He sent His Son to redeem sinners. Jesus is the expression of what God said about Himself that we saw last week that God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This, this truth of who God is has been shown to us, it's been proven. It's not just empty talk. God proved it by sending His Son to the cross. Colossians chapter one twenty one says this: "That you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him." You see, because of our sin, we act like God's enemies. We're hostile towards him. We are alienated from him. There's a, a break in the relationship we have with God. And that is reconciled and restored through the death of Jesus. So God does all this for us in his grace. He forgives us. He restores us through Christ, which brings up this question, how are we supposed to respond to that? How do we react? How do we live in response to To this incredible grace that God gives to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, in our text today, we learn two essential truths that a restored people need to understand. And so if you know Christ today, if your sins have been forgiven, if you've received the benefits of the gospel, what Christ accomplished on the cross, then this is for you. You've been restored to God. So what do we need to understand We find it in this chapter that, number one, a restored people are called to respond to grace, very simply. Verses one through 19 contains some instructions from God. These are his commands. If you look in verse one, it says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. God gives commands to these people. Verse four, again, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded you to do. You see, God has restored these people. He's brought them back by his grace. And now he's calling them to obedience. He's calling them to be faithful. He's calling them to carry out the plans that he has for them. And there's several different aspects to this obedience. The first thing God God gives them commands for is the Sabbath, verses 1 through 3. Let's pick up in verse 2, since we already read verse 1. It says, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. You might say, now wait a second, why bring up the Sabbath again? And besides, JD, you explained several weeks ago that the Sabbath doesn't apply to us in the same way that it applied to them. It's no longer a law that's punishable by death. So what's the point here? Well, the point is this the Sabbath instructions show us that God desires personal commitment. He desires personal commitment from his people. This is how they are to respond to his grace by obeying this command to demonstrate a personal commitment to God. You see, the Sabbath is about more than just taking a nap on the weekend. This is about more than simple rest. Back in chapter 31, we saw that the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant. It was the symbol that these people belonged to God and that he had promised himself to them and they had promised themselves to him. And this Sabbath marked the nation Israel as a unique people. It marked them off as holy and separate. It showed that they were devoted to Yahweh, their God. Just like I wear a ring on this finger as a sign, as a symbol of the covenant I have with my wife. These people were to keep the Sabbath as a sign and a symbol of the covenant they had. This outward expression of a heart that truly feared the Lord. And again, this required personal commitment Individual obedience. It applied to the men. It applied to the women. It applied to servants. They weren't even supposed to do things like build a fire to cook dinner. They were supposed to not do any work. And it was to show their trust in God. This was supposed to be an expression of their devotion to the God who had redeemed them. In the New Testament, the book of James tells us that faith without works is dead. It's really our behavior that shows what we believe, isn't it? You can say you believe something, but how you live is what fleshes that out. And this is what God desired from these people. He desired a personal commitment in response to all that he had done for them. This is how they would show their loyalty to the God who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and the God who had restored them after their failure at Mount Sinai when they worshipped the golden calf. So this is a response to grace. Yes, this is God reinforcing the law, reminding them of one of the Ten Commandments He had given them. The Sabbath is the fourth commandment. But notice here, it's a response to grace. God has done so much for them, and now He calls them to be personally committed to them. But God not only desires personal commitment, secondly, He desires personal investment. Look in verses 4 through 9. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and let onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. These are all the things that they're commanded to bring. And you might say, this makes no sense. What interest does God have in acacia wood and oil and incense and certain yarns? Well, if you've been following through our study in Exodus, remember, God had given them instructions to build a tabernacle. This is how God desired to be worshipped. There was a special place that was supposed to be constructed according to God's precise designs. And this was a great blessing for them because the tabernacle was where God would show up. The tabernacle meant God would dwell among them. And so God now desires them to personally give, to invest in constructing the tabernacle. And this is unbelievably good news for them. Again, remember, they've sinned against God. But because of his grace, because of his forgiveness, God has told them that, hey, those plans for the tabernacle, that's now back underway. His intention is to dwell among his people. And so it's their great privilege to participate in the construction of this place where they will worship God, where His presence will be manifested among them. And I want you to notice here that their contributions that they're supposed to make, if you look at verse 4, verse 5, they're not giving to Moses. No, it's not for him. They're not giving to even the community as a whole. It's not contributions for Israel. They're not giving to the priests, the ones who are supposed to care for the tabernacle and perform all those worship rituals every day. They're not even giving to the tabernacle. It says, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Think about that. Everything that they give is ultimately from God, isn't it? I mean, God had provided them everything they had. These people were slaves in Egypt, and as the the plagues landed on Egypt and they were given their freedom as they were marching out of Egypt, remember it says all their neighbors gave them gold and, and, and all of these supplies for the road. They had plundered the Egyptians. God has provided all of their wealth. And now it's upon them to give those things back to God. And it's really beautiful here because a couple chapters back, these people pulled off their gold earrings and they melted them down and used it to make an idol. But here they're pulling off their earrings. They're offering gold and ornaments and other things, not to worship an idol, but in order to worship God. And this giving, as we see here, is supposed to be motivated by a generous heart. Look at that in verse 5. It says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. If you remember back in chapter 25, even before the golden calf happened, these instructions had already been hinted at. It says, speak to the people of Israel, chapter 25, verse 2, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose spirit moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. So we have to ask the question, well, what would move their heart to give? Why would their spirits be stirred and moved to give something to the Lord? Well, back in chapter 25, these people had ample motivation. I mean, think about what God had done for them. They'd been slaves in Egypt, and God had redeemed them. They'd been wandering in the wilderness, and God had fed them. He'd met their needs each day with bread from heaven and water from the rock. God has been so, so good to them. So there's plenty of reasons for their heart to be moved. There's plenty of reasons for them to desire to give to the Lord. But now here in chapter 35, they even have more reasons. Despite their failure and rebellion in worshiping the golden calf, this God took them back. You know, throughout scripture, the Bible talks about false worship as being a kind of adultery. It's like cheating on God when we worship other things. And it's very difficult for someone to forgive that kind of sin. But God forgives us when we are spiritually unfaithful to him. He took these people back, restored his covenant with them. He's been so generous to them. And now God desires to see that their heart would respond in kind, that their heart would be generous towards him. So this is really an invitation to voluntary giving. It says, whoever is of a generous heart, They're the ones that God wants to bring a contribution. So this is not compulsory. This is not a tax. This is not some sort of extraction where God's taking his due from them. This is no like high pressure fundraising event, you know, where they're trying to shake down everybody and and raise a certain amount of funds. This giving is supposed to be an expression of their gratitude. This is how they show God that they love him and that they're thankful for what he's done for them. And God really desires this kind of a response, a response to grace that makes a personal investment. So the Sabbath shows us God wants personal commitment. These commands for contributions show that God wants a personal investment. Verses 10 through 19 shows us a third thing that God desires. He desires personal involvement. Look in verse 10. It says, "Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded." The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, hooks, frames, bars, pillars, bases. He goes on in the next several verses to talk about the ark and the table and the lampstand, the altar, all the different things that would be used there in the tabernacle. God desires that the people who had the ability, the people who had the skill, that they would step forward and lend their talents and their abilities to the service of the Lord. The tabernacle wasn't going to build itself, was it? They needed workers, and they needed skilled workers who would build everything exactly according to the pattern that God had provided. Now, this wasn't just an opportunity for these workers, these artists, to sort of show off their creativity. It wasn't up to them to come up with their own ideas of what things they thought would be a good idea. Well, we've got a tabernacle. We probably need, you know... No, they were to... Use their skill and their ability to carrying out God's will for his glory and for the benefit of his people, to follow his instructions and to devote their abilities and their time and their efforts to obeying God and carrying out his plans, constructing the tabernacle so that God could dwell in their midst and so that his people could worship him in the way that he designed, in the way that he desired. So God calls his people, after showing them so much grace, he calls them to personal commitment. He calls them to personal investment. He calls them to personally be involved as well. You see, a restored people are called by God to respond to his grace in these ways. Nothing less is an appropriate response to the grace that God has shown us. This is what he desires, and this is what he deserves well, Israel does recognize this grace they've been shown. They recognize that they have a great privilege of participating in what God's calling them to do. And they're eager to obey. Not only are restored people called to respond to grace, but the rest of the chapter shows us that restored people, people who have, who have experienced this from God, they're eager to respond to his grace. They're eager to respond to it. Pick up in verse 20. It says, "Then." All the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of God. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. They brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, Every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair, tanned ramskins, skins or goat skins, brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood or, any, or wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. I think the first and and most stunning thing we see in this text is that responding to grace is ultimately a matter of the heart. Did you see the repetition of how their heart was moved, their heart was stirred? Notice the this constant emphasis. God in verse five had said, whoever has a generous heart, I want you to participate like this. And verse 21 tells us about everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22 refers to all who had a willing heart. Verse 26 tells us about all whose hearts stirred them stepped forward. Verse 29, everyone whose heart moved them. It really can't get any clearer, can it? Responding to God's grace, responding to God's grace rightly, is is a matter first and foremost of the heart. And that's what these people have. As we see here, they are eager to obey. They are eager to worship God. They've been deeply impacted by His grace towards them. Like, wow, this God rescued me from slavery, He fed me in the wilderness. He brought me into a relationship with himself, and then he forgave me when I sinned. I am eager to do anything I can to worship him. Their gratitude overflowed. This is not just some cold duty. They're not just doing what God calls them to do because, well, I guess we technically have to. Let's just get this kind of done and checked off the list so that we can get on because, you know, I need to go out and check on my herds, and and I have a honeydew list with the tent. Got to patch up, you know, some of the flaps on the backside No, they were eager to worship God. This was important to them. And it's not just external obedience. It's from the heart. And friends, this is what God wants. Please hear me loud and clear. More than your service, more than your money, God wants your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Later, Moses would write this. It's known as the great Shema, this calling to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's what God wants. He wants your heart. Jesus quoted this in the New Testament. Many of you know about how this man who comes and he asks Jesus a question. He says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answers You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This, loving God with everything you have, this is the first and greatest commandment. If I can just speak frankly with you, you know, in our circles, we place a lot of emphasis on the mind. And we should. We need to think rightly, don't we? We need to believe the truth. We need to understand. Grace has to be understood before we can rightly respond to it. So yes, the mind is important. And we also place a lot of emphasis on our actions. And this is also right and good. We should. Faith without works is dead. We're called to live a holy life. We're called to put off sin. We're called to do good works. We're supposed to bear fruit and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Yes. But scripture makes very clear That it's not enough to have right thinking and to have right external behavior. God desires your heart. He wants your heart. Jesus gives a stunning rebuke to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. He says to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This people honors me with their lips. They say the right thing, but their heart is far from me. Friends, a right response to God's grace is first and foremost a matter of the heart. So how do we get there? What has the power to stir our hearts? What has the power to move our spirits to make us willing, to make us eager, to draw out our love for God? Can you just sort of like grit your teeth and try harder? Like, man, I guess I need to love God more. I'm just going to try really, really hard to love Him. Can you muster it up in your own strength? Is it somehow up to you to sort of work yourself into an emotional state and just feel more than you feel right now? No, it's not how it works. You can't actually change your own heart. But you know what can move a cold heart? It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God, an experience of his personal forgiveness, an experience of his faithfulness, an experience of his steadfast love. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, when you know it in an experiential personal sense, that will move you. What this means is we need a fresh awareness of God's grace to us. The grace that has been poured out in Christ. Will you consider Christ this morning? Consider his humility in his birth. That Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, who had all glory and splendor in heaven, willingly set that aside. Humbled himself, Philippians 2 tells us, and took on the form of a servant He put on human flesh. He was born as a baby. We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas where God became a man. Born in blood, crying and gasping for air, dependent on his mother to live life in this broken and messed up world. Consider Christ's willingness to live a righteous life in your place here on earth. You and I can't pass the test. You and I can't do enough good things to earn God's approval. So Jesus came and did it for us. A lifetime of personal obedience, sinlessness, facing temptation and opposition, and ultimately succeeding where Adam failed, where you fail, and where I fail. Jesus did that. Consider Christ's willingness to endure accusation, mistreatment, mockery, abuse, and scorn. He was spit on, derided accused of all sorts of things that he was not guilty of. Consider his willingness to suffer beating, to be scourged, and to be crucified, to be nailed to a cross, to suffocate and gasp for air while he slowly bled to death. Consider Christ's willingness to suffer the even greater horror, something far worse than the nails, far worse than the scourging. Consider that Jesus suffered the greater horror of the Father's wrath. Jesus had the holy fury of hell directed at him as if he had personally committed every sin that you and I ever did. Consider that Jesus died, that the Son of God tasted death, the wages of sin, and consider that he did all of this, all of it in love to glorify his Father and to secure salvation for sinners like us to purchase our forgiveness, to bring us out of darkness and death and to give us the light of eternal life. He did this to extend the grace of God to us. If Jesus doesn't die, you and I will die and we will die in our sins. We will die as enemies of God and we will die only to face an eternity of judgment in hell. So if that doesn't move you, if that doesn't stir your heart, it makes me wonder if you really know Christ. It makes me wonder if you've actually received his grace because that's where everything starts. As we receive his grace, as we experience restoration with God through faith in Christ, it causes a change in the heart and it moves us. Responding to grace is first and foremost a matter of the heart. In Luke chapter seven, Jesus tells a story to some people who are critical of him. There was this woman that was washing his feet and they said, doesn't Jesus know who this woman is? She has problems. She has a bad reputation. She's the worst of the worst. And Jesus says, hey, listen, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon, this Pharisee who was critical of Jesus, he said, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then later Jesus explains, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. If you know that you've sinned much, and you've found forgiveness and freedom in Christ, that will produce a great love in your heart for him. Responding to grace is a matter of the heart. But secondly, this passage also shows us that responding to grace is expressed in generous giving. This is the response of obedience to God's command. And there's an amazing note here in chapter 36, if you just flip one page over, that the the amount that the people gave far exceeded the actual need. And Moses had to tell them to stop. It's, it's, this is crazy. Look in verse 3 of chapter 36. It says, And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough. For doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. More than enough, it says. What they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. If you can just imagine what that must have been like, all the people are lined up the next day, excited to bring their offerings and their gifts, and some guy comes along and says, hey, sorry, no more. Moses says we already have more than enough. And the people in the line are disappointed. They're like, man, I should have came yesterday. I should have got here sooner. I'm missing out. That was the attitude in the heart of these people. And this is incredible to me. I mean, have you ever heard of something like this? What a far cry from the fundraising efforts that many churches have to resort to today. This is truly generous giving. It's not compelled by the need. Think about that. They weren't giving generously just because of the need. They were eager rather to have the chance to be a part of it. They wanted a chance to give to the Lord. Too often we measure our giving by needs. Well, there's debts we need to pay off. There's building projects. There's, you know, the church needs to meet budget. We need to pay staff and we need to keep the lights on. And and yes, all those things are important. And yes, all those things do depend on the faithful giving of believers. But ultimately, our giving to the Lord is not just a utilitarian effort. We don't measure our giving purely by the need. Giving is an act of worship. Worship. It's an act of worship. When we give from the heart, when we give to the Lord, we are expressing our love for him. When we give generously to the Lord, we are saying, in essence, Jesus, I love you more than I love my stuff. Jesus, I want to honor you more than I want to spend this money on myself. Jesus, I value you more than whatever it is I might do with this money. Jesus, I trust in you and I find my security and my relationship with you, not in my own investments and and, and not in my, my resources. Jesus, what makes me most happy is worshiping you. Not all my stuff, not all my money. And this is why giving is supposed to be a part of every believer's worship. Notice it was not just a few wealthy people who took care of things. All the people were involved in this. Anyone who could, did. It wasn't just like, well, we technically need to get this tabernacle built, but you know, these two or three families over here are going to cover it for us, so it's taken care of. No, this was a widespread effort with many, many people contributing in any way that they could, whether it was precious metals, whether it was goat skins, whether it was oil or incense, all kinds of people brought all kinds of things. The church ought to be a place where each person is eager to give to the Lord. Sometimes this is a substantial sum, or it may be like the widow in Luke 21 who brought her two copper coins, and Jesus said, she put in more than all these other people who dumped in their large amounts of gold and silver. What matters to the Lord is not the amount. What matters is the heart of the giver. So rather than seeing giving to the Lord as some sort of law that we need to keep, we ought to see giving as a joyful expression of worship, a way in which we get the privilege of responding to the extravagant grace of God that he has shown to us. The grace that's been poured out on us richly through Christ. Responding to grace is a matter of the heart. It's expressed in generous giving. And finally, it's also expressed in eager participation. In addition to just giving the materials, notice that the people lent their time and their skills. We see that the women were involved in verse 25 and 26. Every skillful woman spun with her hands. And all the women, verse 26, whose hearts stirred them to use their skill, spun the goat's hair. These ladies are doing what they can. And the men who were skilled in various trades, they did their part as well. In chapter 36, verse 2, it says, Moses called Bezalel, And Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. All these people rose to the occasion and they got involved. They rolled up their shirt sleeves and put their hands to work. They had all these abilities that God had given them and they used those abilities to serve God's purposes. You know, too often we use our abilities, we use our talents, we use our time to serve our own purposes. We're supposed to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, but sometimes the way we spend our time and our energy shows that really our priority is my kingdom come, my will be done. I've got plans, and I'd love for God to sort of fund those and sign off on them. But really the highest use of any natural abilities we possess, the most meaningful and significant use of the skills we have is to dedicate those things to the service and worship of God. And God uses all sorts of people to participate in all sorts of ways, a variety of gifts, a variety of abilities. But the one thing all those people have in common is that they are willing, that they are eager to offer themselves to God. What this requires, if we're going to be eager to respond to God this way, is that we need to not see ourselves as somehow doing God a favor as if he needs me and he needs my special talents. Rather, we need to see ourselves as belonging to God, that my time is his time. My talents are at his disposal. The Apostle Paul writes along this line of reasoning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, rather. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, He's responding to God's grace. He's saying, this is what dominates my life. It's the love of Christ because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We live for him. We belong to him. He didn't save us and redeem us so that we could do our own thing. He calls us to dedicate our lives to him. Romans chapter 12, verse one famously says, after explaining the, the great work of grace, explaining salvation, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says, in light of everything that Christ has done for us, We are to offer our entire selves to him. This is the response to grace. A heart that is stirred, generous giving, and eager participation. This is the pattern for all who have been restored by grace. So I want to ask you, does this describe your response to God's grace? Where's your heart at today? Does the gospel stir you? Does it move you? Have you personally committed yourself to Christ? Surrendered your will to him? Are you fully devoted to him? Are you personally invested? Are you personally involved in serving Christ? Is it a joy for you to participate in God's program today, the church, and to give of your time and your resources? Maybe you need to sort of check your spiritual temperature this morning because maybe these things are missing in your life. If these things are missing, if your heart is unmoved, if it's cold, if there is no eagerness to respond to the grace of God, there's only two possible explanations for that. Perhaps you have experienced his grace, but you've forgotten about him. You easily take it for granted You've received his gracious benefits and then sort of moved on. You know, there's a story in Luke that illustrates this. In Luke chapter 17, turn there. I'd love for you to see this. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel. In Luke chapter 17, we'll just pick up in verse 11. Luke writes that on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back Praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Why was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Are you more like the one? who was moved to praise God and to fall on his face and thank Jesus for healing him? Or are you more like the nine who were really excited to be healed and sort of ran off to get their life back to normal and sort of enjoy all the things they'd been missing out on while they were lepers? If you have much in common with the nine, if this describes you, then very simply what God wants you to do today is to draw near to him and to remember everything he's done for you. You need to meditate today on the cross of Christ. You need to dwell on it until your heart softens, until until gratitude springs up, until love for the Lord starts to stir. You need to wrestle with grace until your spirit within you is moved and then come and offer yourself to him like that thankful Samaritan did who had been healed. It's easy for us to forget as some authors have called it, we easily get gospel amnesia where we just forget about what the Lord has done for us. And that probably explains some of the coldness. The lack of an eagerness to give and to worship and to serve is that we're not that impressed by what Jesus has done because we've forgotten. But there's a second reason why perhaps Among some in this room, there may be a lack of heartfelt generosity and a lack of dedication to the Lord and a lack of a heart that is really moved by the gospel. Perhaps the reason this is missing in your life is that you've not experienced God's grace in the first place. Perhaps you're here with us today with a Bible open in front of you, singing these songs, but it's very possible that you are still in your sins. You may be in church, but still far from God. Maybe you have not yet been reconciled to Him. You know some of these stories. You know about Jesus dying on the cross, but that message has not yet changed your life. If that describes you, please hear me loud and clear. We don't want your money. Please don't put anything in the offering box. God certainly doesn't need anything from you, we don't need you to volunteer. So don't go from here thinking that you just need to start volunteering your time and figure out how to maybe add in tithing to your budget somehow. No, if that's you, what you need to do today is to receive God's grace, to receive his gift of forgiveness. You need to be reconciled to God. You need to be restored to him. Jesus said in John chapter three that unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again means to be made new. It means that that God takes that dead heart that's in you and he puts his spirit inside you and makes you a new person, a new man, a new woman. And this is a work of divine grace. And it only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. If you recognize your need to be changed, if you recognize that you need to be reconciled to God, then come to Jesus, turn from your sin, believe in him, renounce your unbelief, renounce your pride, and put your trust in Christ. Surrender to him. Bow your will, bow your knees to Jesus. Give your life to him. And what will happen is you will experience grace in a way that you never have before. You will be made right with God, you will be made new, and he will plant in you a new heart that is eager to worship him, that is eager to follow Christ, that is eager to serve him. God is astoundingly gracious to sinners, whether it's Israel in the book of Exodus or whether it's people like us today. He restores us, he reconciles us to himself, he forgives us even though we've broken his law. So as those who have been recipients of such grace, may we be the kind of people who respond with eagerness, who joyfully offer heartfelt worship to God, giving ourselves, our resources, our time, and our talents to serve the one who saved us. Please bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare to pray. Listen, if God's speaking to you today and you realize that you don't know him, And you need to be saved. Don't wait around. You can do that right now where you sit. You can talk to me or one of the other people from our church afterwards. But there's nothing more important for you today than to be restored to God. To be reconciled through faith in Christ. It's only through believing in the gospel of Jesus. Trusting in his name, his work, that you can be saved. And that's a matter of first importance for you. So please don't go from here without making sure that you have a right standing before God. And again, we'd love to talk to you about that, but you can just talk to God about it right now. Confess your sin. Ask Him to change you, to give you a new heart, and surrender your life to Him. And if I could just encourage many of you today, many of you are faithful members of this church. And I feel in some senses like I'm preaching to the choir when I preach a passage like this. And I just want to praise God for the evidence of grace that I see in you as a church. Your generosity over these past years has been amazing. And the credit for that goes to God. His provision at this church has been amazing. Financially, we're in an amazing place. We're not hurting for anything. God has been so good. And so I want to encourage those of you who have responded to grace this way. I hope you don't come away feeling guilty or feeling like you're being shamed into doing more. Just know this, God is pleased with that. He's pleased by your eagerness to worship him and serve him and give to him. So keep it up, keep serving God that way. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for those who may not know you today and ask that you would call them to yourself. Open their eyes to their need, draw them to Christ and restore them Cleanse them of sin and give them a new heart. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would forgive us for how we often forget about your grace, how our hearts are often cold, unmoved, and it takes a lot of effort, it feels like, for us to to give and to serve and do the things you call us to do. Lord, I pray that you would give us this morning just a fresh awareness of your grace, a fresh appreciation for Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. As we sang this morning, even if the whole world were ours, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Those words, those old hymn lyrics are so true. I pray that we would not just sing them, we would live them. Make us a people who are eager to respond to grace. And I pray that you'd bless those who have been so faithful, bless those who have given generously here, bless those who have invested their time and their efforts. Their fingerprints are all over this building. Their fingerprints are all over the lives of the people who have been impacted over the last seven years of this church's life. We pray for more, Lord, that there would be more giving, more serving, not because we need it, but because it glorifies you and you deserve it. So, Lord, do this work in us for the sake of your name. Amen.